I can't help responding to that Groundhog Day dinner. Uh, it is a uh, well, butterflies and groundhogs. Groundhogs. And, and they're going to serve sausage on Groundhog yeah. Day. Yeah. <laughs> Would you tell us what kind of sausage that is? <laughs> That, that's okay. I, it will either be butterfly or groundhog or both. Okay, good. <laughs> so it'll be light on your just, just wanted to make that clear. <laughs> I've got to add one more to Art Linkletter's response to kids' understanding of God and heaven. I heard this from Art Linkletter himself on his program in which he told about a little boy who was there along with his kindergarten friends. They were being interviewed, but the one little boy sat back and his face was so morose and drawn. He just wouldn't participate at all. So Art Linkletter said to the kindergarten teacher, I believe that little boy doesn't enjoy being here. And she said, oh, well, you see, Johnny's dog died and he's having a hard time coming to terms with it. So when it came Art's time to talk to the little boy, he said, and you know, I heard that your dog died, but just remember this, God took your dog to heaven. And the little boy said, what does God want with a dead dog? We left Orpah and Ruth and Naomi at the uh, Jordan River. Brad's act like this morning. He's not walking out on me. Uh, left them at the Jordan River as they returned from being in the land of Moab. And we talked about the events up until that time. Today's lesson picks up with their coming back into Judah. As you remember, the husband and two sons died in Moab. And so Naomi and Ruth are returning back to her homeland where they will spend the rest of their lives. Naomi is broken by all of that has happened. She feels that God has totally forsaken her. In fact, when they friends that she had left 10 years before welcomed her home she responded don't call me Naomi call me Mara Naomi means happiness Mara means despair she felt that God not only had turned his back upon her but that he was punishing her and that the future was very bleak as she returned to her homeland and under normal circumstances her life would have been bleak because a widow depended upon the goodwill of other people. She had no legal claim upon anything that her husband possessed. There were laws in the Hebrew faith that took care of widows and orphans because society would have to be responsible for them. There was no other way that their needs could be met. So she had been thrust upon society. Just whatever they were willing to do for her, that would be her life from that time on. And the fact that Ruth came to share that life with her adds a dimension as to the quality of person that Ruth was. 
Orpah returned to her hometown where there were many young men that she could marry and rear a family and enjoy the rest of her life. Incidentally, Orpah, I've never heard the name Orpah in any other sense. When Oprah Winfrey was born, she was named Orpah. When she entered school, they discovered that they had misspelled her name on her birth certificate, and so she was enrolled in school as Oprah. And so from that time on, Orpah became Oprah. And I think it was a good move. I like Oprah better than Orpah. <laughs> and the fact that she syndicated her program with the name Harpo, which is Oprah backwards, she couldn't have done that if she'd stayed with Orpah. So she profited by changing her name. But Ruth is a name that is heard quite often. Orpah disappeared. No further word. No one knows what might have happened. Ruth, because of her deep devotion for her mother-in-law, her willingness to come back to a foreign land with her, made her name a desirable name, and Ruth is often heard as a name given to a daughter, hoping that some of the qualities and attributes of this young woman could be instilled in the life of this young baby. Ruth was a beautiful person, faithful to her mother-in-law, willing to go into a foreign land where she would be discriminated against. No hope for a husband or future life as there would be had she remained in Moab. And God looked favorably upon her faithfulness and her willingness to become the person that she was. Having returned to their homeland, now dependent upon the goodwill of society, they had to eat. And how does a widow and a foreigner who is a daughter-in-law provide enough food for their house? Well, in Deuteronomy, the law was stated that whenever a field was being threshed, that the gleaners must leave behind everything that falls away instead of reaching and picking it up and adding it to the other that has been harvested. It must be left behind so that the poor and the sojourners could come and they could glean from the ground what had been dropped by the harvesters. This was the way in which the poor were able to get even the leanest amount of food for their table. So this was the only recourse for Naomi and Ruth if they were to have food on their table. So Ruth said to Naomi, I'll go out in the field today and I'll find enough grain for us to prepare for our meals tomorrow. It was the barley season and barley was being harvested. Knowing nothing about the lay of the land, she simply went to the place that looked like it would be most promising and she fell in behind the harvesters and began to collect that which had fallen away to take home. It seemed that the harvesters were impressed by her for whatever reason. Because when the owner of the land came and inquired of who this person might be, they were most complimentary of her, gave a good report of her behavior and her attitude to Boaz, so much so that he approached her. He would not have done this to any others who were following after. There were plentiful, those poor who were seeking to find food for their table in the fields. But this one particular one stood out among the harvesters, and because of their good report, Boaz approached her, introduced himself to her, and complimented her. He learned then that she was the daughter-in-law of Naomi. 
Elimelech, whose name my tongue twisted on last week, was the husband of Naomi, and it was his cousin who was Boaz. So on learning who she was, he immediately related in his mind the fact that this is a young woman who left her homeland to come to take care of her mother-in-law in a strange land. That within itself is a great act of kindness. And now she has proven herself here in the field that she is one who doesn't mind to work, who doesn't ask for special quarter, whose attitude is agreeable to the harvesters. And so he made special provisions for her. He said, you move up closer to the harvesters where you can take advantage of what has fallen. And then he said to those who were collecting what the harvesters had cut with their scythes, leave enough behind that she will be amply provided for. And if enough doesn't fall to the ground, you pull some out of your collection, put it on the ground for her that when she comes by, she'll be able to have enough. And so it was done. That evening when Ruth returned to Naomi, she had a big bushel almost filled with barley. And so Naomi realized that Ruth had found favor with her husband's cousin. Now it was by Jewish law that if a brother were to die and he were childless, then it was the responsibility of the brother, the older brother of the one who died, to take the widow as his wife so that there could be children and the line would not end with the death of the, of the son. So Naomi stretched that just a little bit to incorporate a daughter-in-law who was a foreigner, that if she could marry one of the kinsmen of her late husband, or Ruth's husband, who would also be kin, if a marriage could be arranged there, then she would be accepted in society. She could have a son who would carry on the name of the husband who had died, and it would not end there. This was what the Jewish law provided for. So Naomi said, Boaz is your husband's cousin. Let's find a way that he will marry you, and therefore you will then become a part of society. You will be able to have children who will inherit what Boaz has. Boaz was a rich landowner. The Bible states that he was very rich, had much lands, had no wife nor children, no one to inherit it. This would be a big boon if Ruth would be able to snatch him for a husband. Ruth said to Naomi, I think he likes me because he asked me to eat with the harvesters at lunchtime. And after we had finished lunch, he gave me what was left over to bring to you. So I think he must like me. And Naomi said, well, let's strike while the iron is hot. <laughs> she said, now, when the harvesting is finished and all of the grain has been laid aside, Boaz will spend the night there to be sure that no one comes in and steals the grain. Now, when he goes to sleep, I want you to have prepared yourself for the evening. Take a bath. Get good and clean. Cover yourself with good smelling ointment. Put on your nicest clothes. And when he has fallen asleep, you go in and you lie down at his feet and wait for morning. 
And so Ruth did as Naomi instructed her. About midnight, Ruth had stirred or something had awakened Boaz and he sat upright and he saw this young woman lying at his feet. And he said, what are you doing here? And she said, will you pull your cloak over me? The cool night air is a little too much. And he pulled the cloak over her and so there they occupied the same bed. Now, the Bible isn't explicit as to what took place from midnight until dawn. <laughs> but at least there was a bonding to such an extent that Boaz said the next morning, I'm going to take you as my wife. Now, there's a little bit of a handicap here we're going to have overcome because I'm not the first in line of your kinsman. There is another one who is first in line and I can't marry you until he says that he doesn't, he isn't willing to. In the meantime, I don't want anyone to see you coming out of my place this early in the morning. So you dress yourself so that no one will know who you are and you slip back home. In the meantime, I'll take care of everything else. So Boaz calls 10 of the elders to the gate of the city, which is the procedure followed when the decisions were to be made that would have a legal binding effect. And he brought the 10 elders to the gate. And he waited for the kinsman to come by who was next in line for Ruth's hand. And he said to him, as you know, Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi, is ready to be married to carry on the line of Elimelech. You are next in line. If you marry her, you will inherit the land that Elimelech has inherited as a part of his estate. And so the kinsman said, that's great. I'd like to do that. But Boaz said, but there's one thing I fail to say. In order to inherit the land, you're going to have to marry Ruth. Well, now, apparently the kinsman, who isn't identified in any way or any of the facts about him, apparently he was fearful that if he were to marry Ruth and they were to have a son, that would take the inheritance away from his other sons, the implication being that he had others. And so therefore he said, if, if I have to marry Ruth, then I can't accept the land. And Boaz turned to the 10 elders and he said, you heard what he said. Now hand me your sandal. Now, when one handed his sandal to another, that was the symbol of saying to those around, I accept the terms of this agreement. And so in passing the sandal, then Boaz said to those gathered, you see, the agreement has been made, so I'm afraid to marry Ruth. He married her, took her to his home, and Ruth was well established. They had a son, and that gave Naomi by a stretch of the imagination, a grandson, and would carry on the line that she had begun. There's where the story ends. But the implications of the story are great. In order to understand why this story was included in the Bible beyond the fact that it's great literature, is to know when it was written. Most Bible scholars say that the events took place between 1200 and 1000 BC, but it wasn't written down until after the time of the exile when those in Babylonian exile had returned to Judah after 
Cyrus had freed them from their captivity. And so it was written at that time for a particular reason. I mentioned earlier, we were talking about this story earlier, and I mentioned the fact that the most credible evidence for the fact that this story actually happened is the fact that Ruth, the Moabite, the hated people, was the great-grandmother of David. No one would have ever written a thing like that if it hadn't been true, because that would have brought dishonor to David. The fact that it was written proves that it was true. It was written at the time in which the exiles came out of Babylonia back to their homeland to discover that many of those who had remained behind, and when they were taken off into exile, only the upper class was taken. There was no provision made for the lower classes. They just had to live off the land as best they could. There was no temple. There were no priests. There were no king. So the people who were left behind pretty well made a society of their own. Others came in to take the land that had been vacated. Many of these who came in were Samaritans. And the Samaritans intermarried with the Jews who were left behind. And there were many mixed marriages. And when the exiles came back, they found many attractive women and men living there to whom they were attracted, and they in turn were married as well to foreigners. It was some years after they had returned to Judah. The temple had not been built. The walls had not been rebuilt. Ezra and Nehemiah came from Babylon to see if they could put things in order and reestablish the city with a temple and with the walls the way that it was intended from the beginning. Cyrus had even left money to rebuild the temple, but it hadn't been rebuilt. But when they came back and they discovered all of the mixed marriages, Ezra said, this is why the temple has not been built. This is why the walls have not been rebuilt. God has not looked favorably upon the people because they have intermarried with foreigners. <clears throat> and with one swoop of his authority, he annulled every marriage between a Jew and a foreigner. No feeling at all for broken families, driving away those who are not Jewish from their family home, leaving children without parents living together. It was a terrible thing to inflict upon the people. There was love that had brought the marriage in the beginning and greater love that had brought the children into the home. And here by his legal authority, he had annulled every marriage and had forced them to separate, taking the foreigners out of the society. And it was then that someone decided to tell about the story of Ruth. Hey, if you had done this back then, David would never have been born because it was David's great-grandmother who was the Moabitess who came over and married and became the grandmother, the great-grandmother to David in time. He would have been the result of a marriage with a foreigner not only that, you remember last week I said that the Moabs were hated so much that the law stipulated that anyone who was a Moab could not be integrated into Jewish society for at least 10 generations. <clears throat> if that law had been enforced, David couldn't even been a part of the Jewish society, much less their greatest king. So with that kind of proof and that kind of authority, 
it was written in order to undo the great damage that Ezra and Nehemiah had done in breaking up the homes. Incidentally, next Sunday's study is on Jonah, and Jonah was written for exactly the same reason, to say, you've misunderstood God. God does not mean for you to have no relationships with foreigners. He means for people to live together. Remember in the words of Isaiah that we studied a few weeks ago in which he said, when you go back into your land, you will be a light to the nations. There will be one nation, not just one. The time has come to quit looking upon yourself so favored that you won't have anything to do with anyone else. That's why the book was written. That was the story that was told to say this is how God wants it to be. But the writer of our lesson was intent on making it contemporary and not just an historical event from which we would profit in knowing. She said there's some lessons to be learned here as well, and that is the lesson of kindness. It was because that Ruth was so kind to Naomi that Boaz took notice of her. It was because of Boaz's kindness to Ruth that allowed Naomi to say, hey, we can bring a marriage out of this. There was kindness woven into the story that enabled it to develop into the historical events that it did. And the writer wants us to look at today's society to see if we are living up to that level of kindness in our own lives. Jesus was a kind man. Now, the Bible doesn't say that he was. I don't know of any biblical reference having to do with Jesus that spoke of kindness, spoke of many other characteristics and attributes that we revere about Jesus. But I don't recall any time in which it would just simply say that he was a kind man. But he certainly was by his actions. When he went to the wedding in Cana of Galilee, the host was to be embarrassed because they had run out of wine. It was out of his kindness, his goodness, that he was able to do something about it. And so he caused the water to be turned into wine. It was out of his kindness that that miracle was done and that the situation was changed there at the wedding feast. And remember when the woman was taken in adultery, they were going to stone her to death because the law of Moses stipulated that one taken in adultery would be stoned to death. This was the law, and they were testing Jesus to see if he would tell them to break the Mosaic law. Now, Jesus looked into the face of this poor woman. Everybody else detested her because she was a woman of the streets, a fallen woman. They were ready to stone her to death. That's why they were there. Get rid of her. She's nothing but trash. But Jesus looked into her face and he saw something different. He said to those who were there ready to stone her, if you have not committed a sin worthy of punishment, then you be free to throw the first stone. And each one knew in his heart that he deserved punishment because he was not without sin. And so each one turned and walked away until only Jesus and the woman were standing there. And Jesus looked up into her face and he said, where are those who have come here to accuse you? 
And she said, there are none. And Jesus said, with compassion and love and with kindness, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. With those kind words, she left. And in all probability, she changed her life because of the way in which Jesus looked kindly upon her situation and allowed her to go free. There are many today whom we know that feel that if this situation had been acted out today, we would say, now listen, you sit down here and let me give you a good lecture on behavior. You got by this time, but you won't get by the next time. It's time for you to shave up. We're good at lecturing people. But Jesus didn't lecture. He looked at her heart and saw that she was afraid. She was frightened. She was hurting. And he looked with kindness and simply sent her on her way. Jesus was a kind man. Her children wouldn't have flocked around him the way they did. And how kind he was to the thief that was being killed at his side on the day of his crucifixion. When he cried out, have mercy, and Jesus didn't say, you deserve to die. I'm innocent, but you deserve to die for what you've done. He eased the pain of his dying by saying, today you will be with me. What kindness that he showed. And an example for kindness in our lives today. People are hungry for kind acts and deeds. It was raining one day last week at Milligan. Carlene just told me this at the breakfast table this morning. And Carlene was leaving her office to go to the cafeteria for lunch, and it was raining. She had a small portable umbrella that folds up and isn't very big when you unfold it. But here was one of her students walking to the cafeteria in the rain. She was a senior. And uh, Carlene pulled her over to her, put her arm around her to pull her in close under the umbrella. And the two walked up the hill to the cafeteria together, talking. The student, in turn, put her arm around Carlene as they got together under the umbrella. When they got there and the umbrella was lowered, the student leaned over and kissed Carlene on the cheek and then walked away. An act of kindness had said so much to that young student that she had to express it herself in the best way that she knew how. When I was a student at the University of Tennessee, we went on a Western Foundation retreat to the assembly grounds that we owned in Gatlinburg at the time. And there was a beautiful young woman there to whom I later almost got engaged. We developed a very deep relationship. Uh, I met her on that retreat, had not met her sooner, but was surprised with the fact that there was one person there who nobody wanted to have anything to do with. He was negative. He was dressed in a way in which it appeared that he was defying all of the traditional things. He made such a nuisance of himself that finally he was left all alone and nobody would have anything to do with him. Mary Nelson left the group of the rest of us and she went over and she started talking to the young man. This was early in the weekend. And I noticed that all weekend, that all available time that 
he was present and others were present that she spent her time with him and not with the rest of the group. And it was so surprising. She was such a beautiful young woman from a refined home. And this obviously was a young man who was fighting society and its traditional norms and forms. Later, when we became better acquainted and had developed a courtship, I reminded her of that weekend. And I said, I was so surprised that you spent so much time with this young man. What in the world did you have in common with him? And she said, I didn't have anything in common with him, but nobody else would. And he was all alone. And the least I could do would be his friend for the weekend. Now that's kindness. Kindness that we find opportunities to express so many times every day. And kindness is an imprint upon a person's life that will change them and will make them better when lectures and other means of condemnation drive them further away. Everybody can be kind. Doesn't cost a thing. To give a smile, to open the door, to pat a back, to encourage. Kindness got Ruth a husband and got David a great-grandmother. Who knows where kindness will lead? And out of the kindness of two members of this class, they put a clock up there so they said, you'll know when to stop. <laughs> and it's time for me to stop. So do you have any comments or questions on today's lesson? <laughs> Advanced, uh, when I was in college in the psychology class, our assignment one week was to smile, put a smile on your face, and go wherever you went, through the grocery store, wherever you were. And it's amazing. If you are smiling, someone invariably will speak to you or say something or make a comment to you. And it was an interesting assignment, and people came back, but it was all positive comments they had when they came back. Um, challenging people they had to confront that week, but they did it with a smile and what a difference it made. When I was a student at UT, some short time ago, none of you would remember this if any of you went to UT, there was a path at Ayers Hall on the hill that was designated the Hollow Walk. And there was a sign there that so named it. And it was encouraged that if you met anyone on that walk, you had to speak to them and say hello. And it was amazing how it changed the tenor of the campus because you got accustomed to speaking to people and after a while, you were speaking to people. And it was during that time that a prince from one of the Far Eastern countries was a student at one of the Ivy League colleges. And he came to UT to visit a friend and he was so impressed by their friendliness on the campus that he transferred to UT to finish his education. What a smile will do. So, smile. You may not be on candid camera, but <laughs> God's watching. Thank you. I read a story. There was an elderly girl. The gentleman kept noticing his flowers. She would keep looking at the flowers and looking at the flowers. And so, finally, the gentleman decided. She likes these flowers, and so he to her and said, I would like to be a present of these flowers. And she thanked him. Bus stop, and he, he uh, 
know, he, he got off. And as he started to get off, he looked down to the little girl and he said, I will tell my wife that she would enjoy these flowers. And the little girl watched him as he left the bus and went to the cemetery. <laughs> what a beautiful way to end the lesson. Thank you, Vance. Thank you for all being here this morning. We'll see you next week.